morning. Happy Easter. He is risen. That was a cultural test to see what kind of crowd we had in the this morning. Um, it is Easter Sunday. It's the day that we celebrate the resurrection of God from the dead. It's kind of crazy when you think about it, right? It brings up all kinds of, of questions. Why was God dead in the first place? How is it that that God is killable, that's strange, right? If he did die and rise from the dead victorious 2,000 years ago, what does that have to do with you and me now? Why is it that so many people who profess to, to believe in this risen king have such a dead faith? And, and then there are the questions culturally having to do with Easter itself. Why do people dress a little nicer on this day? Why is it that, that people who uh, maybe don't attend any other church service during the year come in on this particular Sunday? I mean, is God keeping score? Is he, is he kind of tallying based on dress code compliance and particular Sundays that we engage with the local church? If the resurrection is so important, how come uh, many churches only talk about it once a year? These are just a few of the questions that run through my brain and that ran through my brain as a, as a kid growing up. And I'm sure you have your questions too. Uh, hopefully, some of those questions will get answered this morning. Uh, and ultimately, my hope is that you walk away with a better understanding and embracing of who Jesus is and, and what that means for your life, whether you're a Christian or not. This morning marks the beginning of a series that's going to carry us through the end of the month of May. And so for the next seven weeks, we're going to be uh, walking through the I Am statements of Jesus that you find in John's gospel account. Jesus says things like, I am the bread of life, I am the true vine, I am the good shepherd, and, and on and on we could go. All statements meant to tell us something about Jesus. Um, everyone seems to have their take on who Jesus is, right? Some people think that Jesus is nothing more than a good teacher. Some people think that Jesus was one of the greatest philosophers to have walked planet Earth. Other people believe that Jesus was a prophet. Some believe that he was a, a crazy man, including his family at one point. Even those who, who profess Jesus to be the son of God who takes away the sins of the world oftentimes want to soften him or, or form him into their own image. But who does Jesus say that he is? Who is the real Jesus? That's the question that we want to get after this morning and for the course of the next seven weeks. John records uh, his entire gospel account in order to attempt to answer that question. John doesn't exactly go the inconspicuous route as far as the purpose of his writing goes. He's not looking to, uh, to trick anyone into the kingdom, so to speak. I remember growing up as a kid in and out of the church, and I had friends who would try to connect me to Jesus, try to connect me to the church in creative ways. And so I remember around Halloween, one time my friends invited me to go check out a haunted house. And, you know, I, of course, the, the typical adolescent boy response, yeah, let's do it. I'm not scared. Let's do this thing. You know, and, and and we showed up on the scene, and we walked in, and uh, rather than ghouls and goblins, there were various scenes in the different rooms of, of fatal accidents. Um, you know where I'm going with this. If you grew up in the Bible Belt, this enigma known as a judgment house. Um, room one was the girl driving home from Bible study, and all of a sudden her car gets T-boned, and she's standing before Jesus. And it was always this weird Jesus with a halo, and he's petting a sheep like the, the creepy guy from Inspector Gadget with his cat. And I don't know what that was all about. Um, and then you get into room number two, and it was, uh, it was the people in the other car who T-boned the girl coming home from Bible study. But in their case, they were driving home from, 
from prom, completely wasted out of their minds, and all of a sudden, they stand before Jesus, and, and rather than being welcomed into his arms, they're cast out into eternal darkness forever, and you, you get this picture of Satan with his pitchfork, and, and you come to the final room, and, and one side of the room was really cold and had a bluish hue, and Jesus was there with his sheep on, on the one side, and, and on the other side, they, they brought in portable heaters, and, and you would sweat if you were on that side of the room, and there was the devil, and you had to make your decision on, on which one you were going to pick and if you had any sense in your brain whatsoever and two good eyeballs in your head you chose Jesus right and so one by one little kids were uh, were scared into the kingdom and uh, and I remember really loathing my friends after inviting me into that that experience that that's not what John's doing John is very clear about what he's going after in his gospel account in fact if you look at John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31 in your Bible, there, there's even a subtitle that says this, the purpose of this book, okay? Couldn't be any clearer than that. And John says this, he says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written, including the, the very narrative that we're going to engage this morning, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. If you come in this morning unsure of who Jesus is, the, the best homework assignment that you could grab hold of this week is to go and read John's gospel account. We're, we're going to do that as a church for the next seven weeks, and you're more than welcome to join us in that. We're, we're going to take a look at, at each of these I am statements of Jesus, each one functioning as a facet in this multifaceted jewel, meant to tell you a little bit more about who Jesus is. This morning... On Easter Sunday, it's only appropriate that we move in the direction of the, the statement that Jesus makes in John chapter 11, namely, I am the resurrection and the life. It's Resurrection Sunday. And so if you have a Bible, you can open up to John chapter 11. That's where we'll be this morning, uh, particularly in verses uh, 17 through 27. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one underneath one of the seats in the row in front of you. You can grab one of those Bibles and open up to this morning's passage. If you don't own a Bible... Uh, or you have a translation that's difficult to understand, you can take that Bible with you as the church's gift to you. I promise we did not put a tracking device in that. We're not going to show up on your front doorstep and give you weird gifts. We just want you to read the Bible on your own time. Let me, uh, let me pray for us, and we'll jump in, and we'll get to work. Jesus, the very fact that I'm starting a prayer with your name implies belief that you are alive that you have risen from the grave, that you have conquered Satan, sin, and death, and that you are seated at the right hand of the majesty on high. And I do believe that. And I pray this morning that you would do what we are going to encounter you doing in this very passage found in John chapter 11, that you would speak life into our hearts, into our stories, uh, that you would resurrect the deadest parts of who we are this morning, both Christian and non-Christian alike. That if there are those who come into this room who don't know and love and follow you and are sorting that all out or maybe even are showing up just because it's what you do every year uh, when Easter Sunday rolls around, um, that you would uh, call people forth out of the tomb to newness of life and for those of us who do profess to know and love and follow you, that you would breathe life into those residually darkened parts of our hearts that deeply need you to do work by the power of your spirit. So would you do that this morning? 
Holy Spirit, we need you. I know that we need you because I showed up to half a dozen Easter services in my adolescence and did not become a Christian as a result of any of them. We need you deeply this morning. Would you move? Would you work in our hearts, in our lives? We lift these things up in the name of the risen Jesus. Amen. You've heard that phrase, go big or go home. We're going to go big this morning. Uh, We're going to start off this series that's going to carry us for the next seven weeks uh, with arguably the most dramatic miracle that Jesus performs in, in the three years of public ministry leading to his own resurrection. It's a story that uh, ripples both backwards and forwards in time, all the way back to Genesis 1, the creation story, all the way forward to Revelation 22, Jesus' return to make everything sad, untrue. We're talking about a story that says something about the past, the present, and the future. So buckle your redemptive historical seatbelt. It's going to be a crazy ride this morning, but it's going to be awesome. If you can picture uh, in film format, we're going to start kind of in the middle of the story, so to speak, with this John 11 narrative, and then we're going to see a flashback and a flash forward. Um, This story uh, of Lazarus's resurrection actually begins in verse 1 of chapter 11. So let me catch us up to speed on what's taking place in the first 16 verses, a guy by the name of Lazarus who happens to be one of Jesus' close buddies gets really sick. We have no idea of uh, what illness he contracts, but we know that it's terminal in nature. Lazarus is the brother of Mary and Martha, the same Mary and Martha found in Luke chapter 10. Remember that story, Jesus shows up and Martha invites him into her house and she immediately goes into get her done mode. She you know, throws a casserole in the oven and starts uh, pressure washing her driveway. Meanwhile, you know, Mary decides to sit at the feet of Jesus for Bible study. It's the, it's the classic story of do versus be. Don't, don't get so busy doing things for Jesus that you forget to, to be with Jesus, to spend time with him, to grow in a relationship with him. It, it's that same Mary and Martha whose brother is now deathly ill in John chapter 11. And so they send for Jesus knowing that, that Jesus loves Lazarus. And Jesus, upon hearing the news of Lazarus on his deathbed, does a really, really strange thing. If you look back to verses 5 and 6, we're told, Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. He loved them. So, verse 6, Therefore, out of love, when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. That's peculiar, right? You can just hear the disciples, Hey, Jesus, um, Lazarus is one of your good friends, right? He's dying, and you're pretty good at touching things or saying things, and all of a sudden, dying people aren't dying anymore. So, so what's the plan? You want to pack up the donkeys and, and hit the road? And, and then you get Jesus' strange reply. You're right, man, I do love Lazarus. I love his entire family, in fact. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to stay two days right where we are, and then we'll pack up the donkeys and we'll hit the road. That's weird, Right? Please tell me I'm not the only one who thinks that's weird. When, when someone is on their deathbed that we know and love deeply, what do you do when you find that out? You get in the car and you drive or you get on a plane. You, you go to be with that person if there's any way that you possibly can make that happen. Jesus tells the boys not to tear down camp just yet. It's in the verse prior, verse 4, that we get a glimpse of what Jesus is up to. Verse 4 says this, but when Jesus heard, heard it, namely that Lazarus was on his deathbed, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Jesus is not saying that Lazarus' sickness is is not fatal. 
What he means is that death will not have the final word. Lazarus' sickness will, in fact, lead to death. We'll find that out momentarily. But death will be followed by resurrection. Lazarus is going to die. Jesus is going to raise him from the dead. And Jesus will be glorified through it. Now, now this is key. When John uses the word glory, glorified in verse 4, he's not so much talking about praise as he is self-disclosure or revelation. Will Jesus be praised for raising Lazarus from the dead? Absolutely. But more specifically, Jesus will be revealed for who he truly is in raising Lazarus from the dead. Again, remember the purpose of this book, according to John, these things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Jesus intends to reveal who he is in raising Lazarus from the dead. He intends to powerfully demonstrate himself to be God in the flesh. And thus, he waits two days before packing up the donkeys to make sure that Lazarus is good and dead. And according to verse 5, his waiting is not an act of indifference to human suffering. It's actually an act of love. And so it's with that backstory in mind that we come to verse 17, which says this. Now, when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days There's no question that Lazarus is dead at this point in the story. Um, Some early Jewish traditions uh, included the belief that the spirit of a person who died remained near the corpse for three days before departing from the body. And so it was believed that for the first three days that you could potentially resuscitate someone back to life. And so the fact that Lazarus has been dead for four days is a declaration that he is in fact dead. In fact, if you fast forward to verse 39... We're told that Martha believes that Lazarus' body has already started to experience signs of decay, the literal stench of death. Verse 18, Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. This large number of Jews coming in to comfort this family um, likely suggests that the family was rather prominent, which helps to explain in the next chapter uh, the fact that Mary pours out this expensive perfume on Jesus. Verse 20, moving forward in the story. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Going back to that Mary-Martha distinction in Luke chapter 10. Mary, uh, Martha's a woman of action. She's like Aslan. She's on the move, right? And so she goes out to meet Jesus. And upon finding him, we're told, verse 21, Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But now I know that whatever, uh, but even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Martha's words are are a mixture of, of grief and faith. Faith in knowing that Jesus could have kept her brother from dying, but grief in the fact that he wasn't on the scene to do so. And so Jesus said to her, verse 23, your brother will rise again. And Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. There's some confusion here. Both agree that there's going to be a resurrection for Lazarus. Martha believes that to be true. She just doesn't believe it's going to happen in the coming moments. Like like the majority of first century Jews, Martha believes in the resurrection of the dead on the last day. She believes that death will not have the final word in her brother's story. But she's not expecting Jesus to speak life into her brother's dead, lifeless body in the coming moments. Verse 25, Jesus said to her, famous declaration, I am the resurrection and the life. 
Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Jesus does something pretty incredible here. He takes a doctrine that points us to the the last day, what's to come, and he makes it personal in the here and now. He essentially says to Martha, you believe that the Messiah will bring a glorious resurrection about on the last day? That's right and, and good. But understand this, I am the Messiah right here in front of you in the here and now. Resurrection power is at your fingertips. True life and resurrection, both now and for eternity, Jesus says, is found in me and me alone. He's essentially declaring himself to be exactly what both Martha and Lazarus need. Lazarus is is dead. Martha is alive. On the one hand, he says, whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. That's for Lazarus. Jesus has the ability to, to raise Lazarus, both body and soul, from the grave. Whether he does so in this moment or not, is not the ultimate point. The ultimate point is that that death will not have the final word in Lazarus' story. That everyone who dies trusting in Jesus will experience a resurrection one day into the arms of Jesus. That death will not have the final word. But on the other hand, Jesus says, everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. That's for Martha. It's not that we will never experience physical death, It's that we will never know what it's like to be apart from the capital L life, Jesus Christ himself. That in life or death, Jesus is ours. That's what he's saying here. This story is not ultimately about raising a dead man from the grave. Lazarus is going to die again, right? This story is ultimately about seeing Jesus for who he truly is and experiencing true life that comes in our union with him relationally. John says it this way in chapter 17, verse 3. He says, this is eternal life. Webster's dictionary definition of eternal life. That they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Eternal life, true life, is knowing God. And Jesus is God, and thus eternal life, true life, is knowing Jesus. Jesus asks Martha, do you believe this? Do you believe this? He's not asking Martha if she believes that he can and will raise her brother momentarily from his grave. He's asking if she believes that Jesus and Jesus alone is the resurrection and the life. That Jesus and Jesus alone is the source of of life and the hope of resurrection. It's the question that he presents to every single one of us in this room this morning. Do you believe this? Do you believe that true life is found in knowing and being known by this Jesus? Do you believe that Jesus breathes life into the deadest parts of our hearts and stories? Do you know something of his resurrection power in your life? Martha goes on to respond in verse 27. Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God who is coming into the world. Going back to the very reason John records his gospel account in the first place. Going back to John 20. These are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Verbatim, what comes out of Martha's mouth, right? And and to be sure, it's not the end of doubt for her. She's going to have a doubt-riddled moment or two as you continue through John chapter 11. That's the Christian life. But nonetheless, she really does believe that Jesus is the resurrection and the life, that Jesus really is who he says he is. 
If you go on to read the rest of the story, you eventually encounter one of the most incredible miracles in all of the Bible. Three booming, authoritative words. Lazarus, come out! And a four-day-old corpse comes to life. That's Jesus. He's not some fortune cookie philosopher. He's not some guy who just wrote provocative things in the dirt from time to time. C.S. Lewis says it this way. Many of you have heard this quote before from his work, Mere Christianity. Famous quote. He says, I am trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish things that people often say about him, about Jesus. Namely, that I am ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God That is the one thing Lewis says we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that he said would would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. He goes on to say, you must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or... You can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Jesus professes to be the resurrection and the life. That's a claim to deity. And then he raises a four-day-old corpse from the dead. Who do you say that he is? This is really nothing new for Jesus, what we encounter in this narrative. He's been doing this kind of thing, uh, bringing forth life with words since the dawn of human existence. In fact, uh, in the beginning of John's gospel account, these are the first words that he records. He says this, in the beginning was the word. He's talking about Jesus. And the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life. And the life was the light of men. In other words, Jesus was a part of that let there be light stuff in the beginning. How did God bring forth the elements of this glorious, divine, cosmic theater? The answer is, he spoke. He just spoke and things came into existence. He said, let there be light. And light, like Lazarus coming forth from the tomb, said, you got it. I don't really have a choice in the matter. I will now exist. Same thing with trees, and oceans, and animals. And you and I as the crown and glory of God's creation, his image bearers. Think about this. The same Jesus who raised Lazarus from a grave of rock spoke into existence the very rocks that would make up that grave. That's crazy. And let me take it a step further. The same authoritative word of Jesus that brought the world into existence is the same word that sustains it. The author of Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3 says it this way. It says, He, Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. He upholds the universe. Upholds the universe. That's nuts. And you thought raising a dead man was a miracle. Our lives hang in the balance moment by moment. And the difference between life or death for us is no different than it was for Lazarus. It's Jesus' authoritative word that keeps us breathing. Now that declaration, I am the resurrection and the life, begins to make even more sense, right? 
The story of Lazarus undoubtedly points us back to the story of creation, but it also points back to that moment that everything came unraveled. The the fact that Lazarus encounters a a terminal illness implies that sickness and death are, are part of the fabric of the world in which we live, right? Where did that come from? According to the scriptures, sickness and death became part of the world as we know it when our first parents, the first image bearers of God, sinned against God. When sin entered the picture, suffering and death followed suit. And not just physical death, but also spiritual death. That the umbilical cord between us and God was severed, relationally speaking. And and here's the devastating news. It's not just Adam's story. Going back to the garden, it's your story. It's, It's my story. It's why we get sick. Some of you are sick right now, this very morning. That's why death is as certain as taxes. Nobody is escaping that unless Jesus returns before you breathe your last breath. There is no such thing as resurrection in a world with no death. The very thing that we celebrate this morning, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, implies that the world is not as it should be. Genesis 3 is a devastating chapter of the Bible. But it's also the chapter in which God makes a promise to reverse the effects of the curse. To reverse the mess that we've gotten ourselves into. A promise to send a hero who would slay the darkened dragons of Satan's sin and death. So that when you read your Old Testament, you're meant to ask with great anticipation over and over and over again. Is that him? Is that the hero? Is he here yet? And all of a sudden... A man shows up on the scene capable of raising a four-day-old corpse from the dead with words. Could it be the hero promised in a garden so very long ago? The story of Lazarus undoubtedly points to the beautiful story of creation and the devastating story of the fall. That's the flashback in this film, so to speak. But there's also a flash forward. The story of Lazarus also points forward to the story of Easter, that that Jesus came on a rescue mission. He came to uh, reverse the effects of the fall, that the same Jesus who raised Lazarus from the grave would go on to die on a Roman splintered wooden cross. He would go on to be buried in a tomb very similar to Lazarus's tomb. Three days later, the stone would be rolled away, just like Lazarus's stone was rolled away. But here's where the comparison ends, because when Jesus's stone was rolled away, there was no stench of death. There was no four-day-old corpse. Amen, church? The tomb was empty. That's what we celebrate this morning. The raising of Lazarus was a foreshadowing of what was to come in Jesus Christ himself. Jesus, who declared himself to Martha to be the resurrection and the life, rose from the dead, conquering Satan's sin and death. The author of Hebrews in chapter 2 says it this way. Since, therefore, the children share in flesh and blood, meaning that we're human, that's you and I, He, Jesus himself, likewise partook of the same things. He became human. That through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. That we've been enslaved to Satan, sin, and death all the way back to the garden. That Jesus is the promised hero who came to reverse the effects of the fall. The last Adam, Jesus Christ, came to do what the first Adam failed to do. That God had a plan to destroy death before death ever even entered our story. And Jesus is the one bringing that plan to fulfillment. Isn't it ironic that death began to die when Jesus died? That Satan thought he had won, but we see the death of death in the death of Christ. Paul says it this way in 1 Corinthians 15. Oh, death, where is your victory? 
Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, death is like a bee buzzing around without a stinger for the Christian. It's still in our faces. It's still something that we experience. It's something we can't escape. But Jesus bore the sting of sin and death on our behalf. That our sins were put upon him and he was punished in our place. That he absorbed the venom of death, you could say, and drained it of its potency. And three days later, he rose from the dead, conquering those great enemies of ours, of Satan, sin, and death. So that we can now confidently sing words like, Christ is risen from the dead, trampling over death by death. Come awake, come awake, come and rise up from the grave, just like Lazarus. Did you know? Did you know that Jesus does what he did at the tomb of Lazarus every single day? He's still doing it. Every day, Jesus commands people to rise up out of the ashes of spiritual death into the newness of a relationship with him. Every single day. Now, that's offensive if you don't believe that apart from Jesus, you're spiritually dead, right? Let's be honest. But that's exactly what the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians 2. He says this, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, Paul says. That's incredibly offensive if you come in this morning trusting in anything or anyone other than Jesus for hope and salvation. Incredibly offensive. Paul's saying that if that's you, you're presently dead. The spiritual equivalent to Lazarus in John chapter 11. Elsewhere, Paul says it this way. Arguably, maybe my favorite verse in all the Bible. It's a part of my own conversion story. Paul says this. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness. There's the allusion to creation. Has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That the same God of creation is also the God of recreation. That, that we cannot claw our way out of the tomb of spiritual death in our own strength. That, that religion says that you can, you can raise yourself up out of the ashes by, by virtue of being a good person. That you can walk out of the tomb in your own strength. Just attend a few Easter services. Just be nice to your neighbors. Don't kill anyone. I don't know what it is. Like, it's so subjective, right? It's a comparison game. Look at the person to your left and your right. And if you're better than one of them, you're probably good with God. That's a terribly risky way to live, in my opinion. The Bible teaches otherwise. According to the scriptures, we need a miracle. We need God to do that very thing that he did when he spoke the world into existence. That, that if you're a Christian, it's because Jesus, who said in the beginning, let light shine out of darkness, let there be light, said the same thing to your dead, lifeless heart. That you didn't do anything. That God said, let there be light. That God said, Lazarus, come forth. And the scales fell away from your eyes and you saw Jesus for who he truly is. That's how anyone is converted. By grace. Grace alone. If you're not a Christian, that's my prayer for you this morning. That you come face to face with your entombment. With your sin. With the spiritual death. That, that, that is your identity currently, according to the Apostle Paul, that you see that it's an exercise in futility to attempt to roll that stone away yourself. 
That you see that, that God, knowing you couldn't get to him, came to you. That Jesus lived the life that you could never live. That Jesus died the death that you deserve to die. That your sins were put upon Jesus and he was punished in your place. That you see that he rose from the grave victoriously, conquering, slaying those darkened dragons of Satan, sin and death. That you see that the resurrection and the life, Jesus Christ himself is our only hope of rising up out of those ashes. My prayer, very simply put, is that God would declare to your heart in this very moment, if he has not already done so this morning, let there be light. And like light in the creation story, your heart would go, you got it. I don't really have a choice in the matter. I will now come alive. That this morning would be the morning that you walk out of the tomb and into the arms of Jesus. And if you are a Christian... Man, this is where we get this so messed up in the Bible Belt. Jesus doesn't just do that once when you're converted and then abandon you, right? That's not Christianity. He continues to breathe life into the deadest parts of our hearts and stories every day, sometimes moment by moment. We treat the doctrine of the resurrection oftentimes like a piece of wedding china. Do we not? It's valuable, maybe even beautiful. We take it out on special occasions at least once a year on Easter. But the doctrine of the resurrection having relevance in our everyday lives? What if the same God who called Lazarus forth out of his tomb, the same God who walked away from his own tomb 2,000 years ago, is committed to rolling away the stone of human hearts today? Today. What if you could wake up tomorrow and the next day and the next day with anticipation, with expectation that God's going to resurrect that he's going to work in your life in that way. Jesus loves to resurrect dead things. It's his bread and butter. Let me ask you, where do you need resurrection this morning? Maybe it's your relationship with him. Maybe it's that simple. Maybe it's a relationship. Maybe it's your marriage. Maybe it's a struggle with sin that's leading to death in your life. Maybe it's a particular battle with doubt with unbelief. I don't know what it is for you, but what I do know is that Jesus declares himself to be the resurrection and the life. And if he can breathe life into a four-day-old corpse, he can breathe life into the deadest parts of our hearts and stories. If he can walk away from his own grave, he can call us forth from ours. In some cases, it may not happen this side of eternity. We may have to wait just like Mary and Martha had to wait. But, but here's the good news. Even if he does make us wait until that last day when he returns to make everything sad, untrue, he's ours in the midst of the waiting. And that's the greatest gift of all. Let me leave us with what I think is a, a pretty provocative question before we move forward in our service this morning. What do you think was the most glorious sight that Martha's eyes beheld that day? What do you think was the most glorious thing that Martha saw that day? Her four-day-old corpse of a brother walking out of the tomb, that's pretty amazing. Or Jesus. The greatest gift of the gospel is God himself. He is our gain. And he is the resurrection and the life. He is the one that we celebrate this morning.